0: Well, good morning. How are we doing? Welcome. If you're new here, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors. It's a privilege to open up a God's Word with you this morning, and we got to just jump into it. So Matthew chapter 6, uh, I'm going to read one verse, so we're going to cover a lot of it today. Uh, I'll read one verse, pray for us, and we will just begin to unpack it here. So, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read what, what I believe is the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto of what the Christian life looks like. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, uh, I think it summarizes the entire book of Matthew. Listen carefully. This is God's Word. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you now, we come in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. And we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would make this truth uh, just evident in our lives and our midst. Lord, show us now what it means to seek first the kingdom and your righteousness to then that Jesus is seen, savored, and glorified in our lives and we are satisfied in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, you know, there, there are some places that you probably go, uh, that, I, that I go, and, that you would go. And, and what we what the Puritans would say is they stir your affections for God. So maybe it's the mountains or, or the ocean. But there, there's two places that, that I like to go that maybe aren't on your list of places that would stir your affections for God. But when I'm there, it stirs my affections for God. The first place is the city dump. When I was, uh, when we were living in Okinawa, we would, a few times a year, would have to take a trailer load full of junk from, from our house, from the ministry, and, and go to the dump. And so I would bring one of my daughters, the little kids, and, and I'd want them to come with me, and I'd want them to see the dump, because uh, as we go into the dump, and, and I want them to smell it and see it, and, and we'd stop and just pause and, and, and observe what's in the dump. And I'm like, hey, look over there, that, that looks like that was a bicycle, over there, that, that's a, uh, that was a, a doll. Some, some little girl's doll is here. Over there are some, uh, looks like, discarded ki- kitchen cabinets. And, and we would just try to see what we could identify. And, and what I wanted to show them and, and show, remind myself of is that everything we trust in and pursue and, and, and gather in this world is the future uh, of garage sales and the city dump. The impermanence of this world. So so we spend a lot of time, and I wanted my daughters to know from the earliest of age that you're going to pursue a lot of things, and you're going to love a lot of things, but they're eventually going to end up here. So they're not of your ultimate importance. They're not of your ultimate affection. So just remember, this is where everything goes. So that stirs my affections for Jesus. Because it makes me long for something that's more permanent, something that's not going to end up in the dump, but something that's of eternal value. Now, the second place is similar. If that reminds me that all the stuff is impermanent, the second place I love to go to, and I've shared with you before, reminds me that I am impermanent, at least on this side of eternity. I go to the cemetery. I love walking amongst the cemetery because as you walk amongst the headstones... It's really a tragedy that more people aren't buried today just for this purpose. You walk and you realize, and you see the headstones, and you sometimes they have uh, what they did for their job or the, how old they were. And some people lived a long lives and some short lives. And, and you just realize, man, these are image bearers of God that have come and are now gone. And I'm going to be in a place like this one day. A few months ago, I was uh, in northern England. I don't even know what the town was, but I was with uh, my boss, and we were driving to go meet some other missionaries, and... Uh and as I was driving, I saw on the map a cemetery, and I said, oh, we, we gotta go there, and he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, no, we, we gotta go to this cemetery in, in England, and he's like, okay, that's that's a weird flex, but okay. Uh, so, I, I drive to the is that not the proper use of the term? Okay, so, I, I drive to the cemetery, and he's like, okay, so I was like, no, just walk with me, let's just walk, and, and again, I'm looking at the headstones, and now these headstones, some of them are older than America, and, and I'm just kind of pondering their lives and what they went through, and you, you you see the dates on their, their, their headstones and you realize, man, they went through World War II. These people went through World War I. And you just kind of picture what they went. There's a story in all of them. And everyone has a story of triumph and, and tragedy. But uh, then we get to this section and it, it's, it's a section for, for children. But the, there's a, a balloon. And obviously it was still had a helium. It said third birthday. And you're like... Who celebrates their son's third birthday at the cemetery? It just reminds me of Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because we live for such uh, temporary stuff. Uh, The the author of Ecclesiastes says we chase after the wind. Vanity of vanities is all the stuff that, that we go for that actually does not matter. David Foster Wallace, who's not with us any longer, but a few years ago was invited to speak at uh, the commencement address at Kenyon College. It's entitled, the the address is entitled, uh, This is Water. Uh, He was not a believer, uh, but uh, God's common grace through him, he had a lot of wisdom. And as he's, he opens up the story, uh, talking about uh, two fish, he said two fish were swimming one day, two young fish, and, and along comes an older fish swimming the opposite direction. And the older fish says to the younger fish, uh, morning boys, how's the water? The two fish continue to swim on, and after a while the fish stop and uh, they look at each other and they say, what the heck is water? <laughs> it's just what they swim in. And and David Foster Wallace says this, the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. The most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about because we're just swimming it. Jesus did not have that problem. He's not ultimately from here, so he comes as an outsider from heaven and glory, and he sees the reality, and he's not afraid to talk about it. And so he presses on in on us. Because the things that we uh, give ourselves to, we, that we believe will satisfy our souls, we know, if we just stop and think about it for a moment, we know it doesn't satisfy that we continue to try. So so we, we get more income and, and we expand our lifestyle. So now you're going to get a new car, you better get heated seats. Because after all, you need heated seats now. I didn't need them when I was 16, but I needed heated seats now. You go from a 4-cylinder a to a 6-cylinder uh, to an 8-cylinder. And then I read this week that the BMW has a car with 12 cylinders. I need that. are <laughs> like, why? You just get from A to B. Well, you get there a little bit quicker. You know, the, the, we can we can expand. We think, man, I'll be satisfied if I get that. If I if I arrive in that position, I'll be satisfied. I'll, I'll be and we just tell ourselves that. We tell ourselves that. We tell ourselves that. But if we just do a little bit of self reflection, and this is what Jesus wants us to do, we realize ah. That's not, there, there is not a one-to-one correspondence to getting that thing. It's always kind of just beyond our reach because if we just get a little bit more or the, a little bit nicer house or a little bit nicer car, then we'll be satisfied and, and we really aren't. You know, 21 years ago when Jennifer and I got married, by uh, by Colorado standards we were poor, by worldly standards we were very rich, but uh, we lived in a one-bedroom, 500-square-foot apartment. Uh, we drove broken down cars. We didn't have cell phones because who did back then? I, we couldn't afford them anyway. But um, we, would, we would go to Cherry Hills Community Church. They gave uh, poor people and seminary students free food. And so that's where we would get our food. Uh, and then uh, we, would, uh, we would see who could take the quickest shower because we, we were trying to just save money. But we didn't have a lot of stuff. But, but there's something else that we didn't have a lot of fear and anxiety. And now we have a lot more of stuff, a lot more of things, and you know what? We have a lot more anxiety. And so, just in our own lives we realize, man, that that hasn't really worked out. All the pursuing of the temporary stuff hasn't really worked out. Even though it's the, the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in, that if you just get enough, if you just get more, you will be satisfied. But we know it's not true. After all, Parker, Colorado should be the most satisfied, happy people on the planet. Historically and worldly speaking, we are the most wealthy, comfortable, safe people on the planet. And yet, we all carry a ton of baggage and anxiety and fear into this room. So, so the, the American dream must not deliver us uh, from our burden and anxiety. So Jesus wants to address that in our souls on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to go after that. He's going to point out the water and he's going to say, the water is poisoned. You you need different water. You need to live for a a different kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 6, he's going to press in on us. And again, what he's going to press in on is some of our idolatry. Things that we believe will satisfy our souls, so we worship and we give ourselves away to, but in the end, they do not satisfy our souls. And, and as he presses in on us today, we're going to see three things. First of all, we need to see uh, the, the, the foundation for why he's saying this. Why would Jesus say these things that make us feel uncomfortable and we don't like? And then we're going to see some some warnings that he's going to give us, and he's just going to point out in several ways, hey, this is not going to satisfy your soul. This is not going to uh, deliver you. You can't get where you want to go from here. And then he's going to give us several exhortations. So Jesus isn't just going to give us one reason why we shouldn't trust trust in things and stuff. He's going to give us several, and he's not just going to give us one tool to fight the fear and anxiety that we all carry around. He's going to give us several, because he knows the water in which we swim. So let's look at it together. First of all, uh, in, in Matthew chapter six, you got to understand who's saying this and why he's saying it. What, what Jesus is about to tell you and me when he's going to put before us a, a, a singular focus. And by the way, th- this is the Sermon on the Mount. There, there, is, there is no kind of two ways about it. Like you can't have a little bit of a Jesus and, a, and the American dream and, and think that's going to get you there. Like Jesus is absolutely committed to your absolute full obedience and worship. And it is for your good. So that's the foundation. Whatever Jesus is going to say to you today, whatever Jesus says and does is for this. For his glory and for your joy. For his glory and for your joy. Those are not opposite things. Ultimately, Jesus wants you, ha- wants you to have an eternal joy that is rock-solid foundation. But you've got to understand that the, the joys that we seek after are impermanent. They're vanity. They're, they're, they, uh, they go away so quickly. And he just wants to point that out in us. But he's after our joy. So, a few hundred years ago... Uh, the Westminster Catechism first question is, what is the chief end of man? That They were just asking the question, what, why are we here? What's the purpose? Why are you here? And the answer from passages like this and the rest of the Bible, they came up with the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And he's not willing to give away his glory to anything else. He knows you will not be satisfied by giving yourself away to things that are ultimately of no importance. And so he's going to go right after it. So, but you have to understand, this is for your glory. This is for his glory and your joy. Let's look at it. He gives three warnings uh, about the stuff of this world. And in each one, he kind of gives us uh, uh, reasons for it. First of all, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures. This is verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Again, he's just pointing out to the city dump. He's like, this is where everything you hope in, everything you're living for, everything you're arranging your life around to get, and it's impermanent. It's susceptible to to moths and and decay and rust, and, and, and thieves can break in and steal. And so if your hope and your joy can rise and fall on what a bug does, that's not very good foundation for your hope and joy. So he says, don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So uh, Randy Alcorn in this book, The Treasure Principle, points to this verse and he says about this, about our stuff. You can't take it with you your treasure. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Meaning you can invest in God's rule and reign expanse to the nations here and now in such a way that forever and ever you will rejoice in the way that you handled that. He says there, there is a sure foundation. It is the kingdom of God if you pursue that. Not only that, there's something even more important than that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus spends 15% of all of his teaching on money. More than heaven and hell combined. Why? Again, it's not because he was seeking money. He had one earthly, gar- one earthly possession his whole life. He just knows that money is just this excellent spiritual MRI. It exposes us like nothing else in our lives. The most important spiritual document in your life is your bank account statement. It'll say what you really treasure. And so Jesus is not uh, going after your money. He's going after your heart. And he says, where you locate your heart, you will find your treasure. And and so he's pressing on that. So the first warning is, hey, don't don't store up treasure on earth. It's impermanent. But put your heart in heaven. Verse 22, he gives another one. Now, this one's a, a little bit confusing at first he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then if then the darkness, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now that, that doesn't even make sense. But think, think about what Jesus is saying. I I, I think he's saying this, what you fix your eye on what, what you see, like that's either light or, or darkness. So so if you go into the room and the room's completely dark, or if you're blind and you don't know the layout of the room, you're going to stumble around and you're going to stumble around in life. So if your fixation is on ultimately things that are darkness, you're going to stumble through life. But if your fixation is on the light, it's going to give light to your whole life and you will navigate life that way. So if your eye is good, you, you behold the light. If your eye is bad, the darkness is in you. So What we focus on determines our direction, which determines our destination. Let me put it this way. When I was a little kid, I remember the very first time I was uh, uh, taught how to mow the lawn. I was at my grandfather's in Kansas, and, at, and I think it was a really large yard. It might not have been. I was just a little kid, but he's like, here's how you mow. And so uh, I get behind it, and he's like, now mow a straight line. And I'm like, okay. So I'm looking at the mower, and I'm pushing. And, and we get to the end, and he says, now turn around. And it looked like a drunk person was mowing the lawn. Like I was all over the place because I was just like, man, I, I've got this mower. I'm just going, just going. And he says, now here's what I want you to do. See that fence post over there? I want you to focus on the fence post. Don't worry about the mower. Just look at the fence post and, and, and push the mower to the fence post. So, so don't take your eye off of anything else. And, and I, I pushed it and we got in and we looked back and he said, look at your line now. It was perfectly straight. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. Your focus determines your direction, which determines your destination. If your focus is on darkness or on the things of this world, that the temporary things, you're going to stumble and bumble through life. But if your focus is on the king and the kingdom, then... Your direction will determine your destination. We say that a lot here. So direction determines destination. Not your intention, not your hopes, not your dreams. Like, oh, I I hope I'm going to do this or that. But your direction actually determines where you will arrive. And so Jesus says, if your focus is on the king and the kingdom, you'll arrive where you want to arrive. But if it's on these things that are impermanent, then it is darkness. And then he gives one, one more warning. He says, no one can serve two masters... For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now in 2,000 years of church history, you and I are not the exception to this rule. Though every one of us believe we are. Every one of us think, well, I can't a little bit. I mean, this sounds kind of extreme, Mark. Well, let me just say, Jesus is extreme. He is pursuing your absolute devotion, not a dual-hearted kind of devotion. Why? For God's glory and for your joy. You cannot serve God and money. Now, he could have put said other things in there. Cannot serve God and prestige and wealth or sex, but, but money, money just has a way of encompassing all of that. Like, you, you might have some fears in here, and you're like, I'm not afraid about money. I'm afraid for my kids. And so I just want to make sure my kids are, are, are provided for, that they have all the best opportunities, they go to the best school, and, and they, they, they are, they're on the traveling team. Oh, that's going to take a lot of money, but but I'm just really concerned about my kids. And so money becomes this kind of God that will serve your other purposes, and we believe that if we get enough of it, we won't have anxiety or fear. And Jesus says that never works You can't be dual-hearted in your devotion toward the kingdom. Either you're going toward the kingdom or you're not. So if it seems like crazy to you to give a tithe, it's because you haven't understood this. You think, well, I can serve both. And we're in middle-class Parker, Colorado. John Piper says a tithe is the middle-class way to rob God. You really think that that's all that God God given you all this so you could give ten percent to the King and the Kingdom? Ridiculous! That wasn't even in my notes. Uh, uh, David Foster Wallace goes on in, in his in that that speech and he, he says something and again. This is not someone coming from a Christian worldview. He he just knows that you will serve, you will worship, you, you will ha- you will be mastered by someone or something. You just better be careful who is that master. Here's what he says. Here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. You will worship something. You cannot have two masters. And because Jesus is after his glory and your joy, he lovingly rebukes us. But then he turns because uh, so much is tied with our money and our, our treasure, with our anxiety that's all tied together. And he turns and he addresses the fears and anxieties that we all carry. Verse 25, he gives five exhortations. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of what he's just said, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Three times in the next couple paragraphs, he's going to say that. Do not be anxious. It's an imperative. It's a command. Do not be anxious. Now, I take some comfort in that. One, because of the person giving the command. But two, because it is a command. It means there must be something to it. There must be something backing that up. So for example, if you go out to lunch tomorrow with your friend and you come out to the car and you're like, oh, I forgot my wallet. I gotta go get that. And your friend says to you, don't worry about it. Hop in the car, let's go. And you go and you eat this great meal and the, the, the waiter comes out and gives the bill and your friend's like, what you gonna do? You'd be like, what are you talking about? You said, don't worry. Yeah, I just didn't want to you have all this anxiety while we ate. And I just thought maybe you could go wash some dishes. But no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Say, don't worry. And I've got some good reasons for you not to carry all that fear and anxiety that you carry around. And we all do. And he says it three times. Do not worry about your life. First one, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, let me just say something about that you and I probably don't worry a lot about what we will eat, what we will drink, or what we will put on. But but Jesus is not talking about trivial things here. Not in the first century. When, when drought and famine were a real threat, like if you didn't know if you could feed your family next month, that would be a legitimate worry. We just take it for granted. We take it for granted that we can turn on our faucet and we'll get something to drink. We take it for granted But those people didn't. They had, so so what I'm getting at is, Jesus knows you have legitimate worries. And even in those, he's got got an exhortation for you. Don't worry about what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. Uh, Clothing was very expensive. Jesus, that was Jesus' one earthly item that he had was his one piece of clothing. And so people legitimately worried about this. But then Jesus says this Is life not more than food? and the body more than clothing. He's basically saying there is more to life than this. Elsewhere in Luke's gospel, he says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now daily, the water that we swim in, uh, this is what we tell ourselves. This is what our economy is built on. You need this because it'll make you happy, or you need this because it'll make you safe, or you need this because it'll make you comfortable. And Jesus says, you know there's more to life than all that. We know this. So, tomorrow you could get a call from your doctor that says, Hey, you have cancer and it's not good. All of a sudden, all your pursuit of all the stuff and all the things that you're going after in your life will come into immediate focus and you'll say, Is not there more to life than those things that I've been giving myself away to? Or, positively, you fall in love, you have a child. Uh, you realize, man, money can't buy this. This is, this is what life is about. There, there is more to life than the stuff that we give ourselves to. And so Jesus just points out, don't worry about it. But, but he gives us more reasons because there's so much that we carry into this room. Let's look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So so Jesus is pointing to God's loving, tender, providential care. And he says, look at the birds. God didn't just create the universe, spin it up and say, go after it. No, Jesus is saying, God makes the the, the worm come up to the surface at just the right time. And and then he has the bird go and eat the worm. And and God cares about that bird. And then he uses a, a lesser to greater argument. He says, Are you of not more value than they? And, and the first century, they wouldn't have had a problem like we have a problem. They're like, Yes, infinitely more value. We're created in your image. Of course, if you lovingly care, if your providential care extends to the birds, of course it extends to me. Now we're a little bit more confused. Well, it's a bald eagle egg, or it's an unborn child. Oh, I don't know. I don't know which one's more valuable. You'll go to jail if you touch that. It's insanity. It's cultural insanity. But deep down, we know you're of infinitely more value because you bear the image of your maker. And because God cares for the small things, we can say, of course, he cares for us as well. So that's Jesus' second argument. You're of infinitely more value. And he's a heavenly father that cares. Verse 27 is the third one. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? His third argument is anxiety doesn't work. No matter how much you have, you, could, you might have a ton of it. it. It won't work. In fact, it works opposite. Doctors tell us you can't add to your life by being very anxious, but you can certainly subtract to, from it. You can take some hours from your life by just carrying around all that anxiety and fear and worry. So he says it doesn't work. So don't be anxious. It doesn't work. It's a false prophet, by the way. All the things we're anxious about uh, oftentimes are, are, are things that we worry about and suffer through that ultimately don't even happen. So, so when, when you're anxious, when you worry, you, you can suffer twice. Now, before it ever happens, and, and if it ever actually does happen, you'll suffer then. But, but in this moment, anxiety doesn't work. First, let's drop down to verse 31. There, there's other arguments, there's more. I hope you would spend some time this week just kind of meditating on this. But in verse 31, we see the fourth argument. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. Now look at this argument. He says, for the Gentiles, and in this context means the pagans, those that don't ha- know God, those that not, are not part of the kingdom of God, those that aren't pursuing God, it says, for the Gentiles seek after or give their lives to all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. So, so when we worry, when we stress, when we hoard, when we do all those things, we are actually not acting like kingdom citizens. We're acting like people that have no place in the kingdom. We're acting like unbelievers. It says, you have a heavenly father. You, you can trust him. And, 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 and live like that. So when, when, my, when my kids were real young, I, I, I tried to train them early on how to handle money. And so uh, I gave them allowance based on their age. And, and they would sit down with me each month. And uh, so, for example, if they were 10, I would give them $30, three times their age. And I would say, okay, um, now here's $30, but you need to uh, give, save, and spend you need to give, save, and spend. I just want to train you, give, save, and spend. And so they're like, okay, here's $30. What do you want to give? And all of them were like, mmm, $20. I was like, uh, well, but if, if you give $20 and then you save like $7, you'll have $3. They're like, yeah, we'll give $20. I'm like, uh... You're you're going to have to learn how to live. And so I don't think you can give $20. And and so they're like, okay, what can I give? I'm like, okay, you can give 20%. They're like, okay, 20%. So they would give 20%. But but, but I just realized in that moment, why? Why are they so much more generous than I am? (laughs) Because I, as their father, was giving it to them. I've already provided for them. I've given them food and shelter and housing. I've done everything for them. They know that all their needs are going to be met in me, so they open-handedly and very generously uh, give to that because they trust their heavenly Father. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't act like the pagans. You have a heavenly Father, and he's a good Father, and he gives good gifts. So live like that. There's a fifth one down in verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, when you first read that, I read it this week. That sounds discouraging rather than encouraging. Don't, be, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to suck in and, in and of itself. <laughs> like, yes, Jesus, that's my problem. I know it is. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is just pointing out, hey, God's mercies are new every morning. Right now, in this moment, whatever you're going through, God's mercy for today is meeting you in that. You can't borrow from tomorrow's mercies for today. You have enough today. When you get to tomorrow, oh yeah, there's going to be trouble and hardship. But guess what? His mercies will be new tomorrow. And it'll be called today. And the next day, and the next day. And God has given his people this kind of pattern throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, when they wandered around the desert, uh, God gave them manna. Mah is Hebrew for what. Na means is it. So what is it? Manna, Mana, manna. Mana, what is this? And, and they would eat it every day. And, and they would be tempted, like we were tempted, like, oh man, we're finally eating something. We better hoard this. And so God said, don't hoard it. We'll give you enough for today. And, and so they would be like, no, we're going to hoard it. And so they would hoard it, and it would get spoiled and rotten and mad and worms and rats would infest the camp. And they'd be like, God said, I told you, you can't take it for tomorrow. I'll give you what you need today. That one exception was on the Sabbath. You could take two days, and God miraculously provided it and preserved it for two days. But there's, there's just this pattern. The Christian life isn't so much about, oh, what's going to happen next year or next 20 years? Or, uh, it is, what, what is God's will for my life in the next five minutes? How can I seek the kingdom here and now? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let me just say a side note. This does not mean Christians never starve to death. Doesn't mean they don't die. Doesn't mean they don't go homeless. The rest of the Bible tells us that happens. Hebrews talks about it. Paul talks about nakedness and hardship and struggle. What it means is God has you forever. So it doesn't mean everyone gets healed, but ultimately you do get healed in Jesus. Ultimately you do get fed in Jesus. Ultimately you do get clothed in Jesus. And so our lives is to seek first. That, that word seek first is an imperative. It, it doesn't just mean by priority. It, it, it could mean seek only the kingdom. So, so it's not enough like, oh, God, just have my priorities right. Like, okay, God, you've given me money. I'll give my first fruit. Now I can do whatever I want with the rest. No, seeking first the kingdom says, man, everything in my life is yours, God. I want to live for you. So yes, I give to your kingdom, but but what about the rest? Well, I, I want to honor you in, in that as well. And, and with my work, God, you didn't just give me this job for, for money for my family, though that is a good gift. You gave me this job to extend your rule and your reign, your kingdom, in this place. You didn't just give me this family so that I can enjoy them and we can have our own little uh, huddle. You gave us this family to make your rule and reign expand on the earth. You didn't just give me my wife for my enjoyment, but that together I can help, uh, help her flourish in such a way that the kingdom is advanced in every way. And you look at your, your hobbies, you look at uh, everything in your life. To seek first the kingdom means over everything. What is God's will for that? How can I press into the kingdom? Now, now, what would that look like for you this week? I just want to remind you, it is direct, direction, not perfection, that Jesus is looking for. All of us are on a journey. Like all of us have gone astray this week. But is your direction seeking the kingdom? No matter where you're at this morning. Maybe you just started. You've gone way off course. Jesus is wonderfully gracious in this. Merciful. The Bible gives us a path. It's called repentance and turning to him in faith. You could be headed the opposite direction. Jesus, like your little phone map, and when you, when you get off course, it doesn't say, you stupid driver, what are you doing? No, it just says, hey, rerouting. Rerouting. <laughs> it just reroutes. Jesus is constantly just rerouting. It's direction. It's your direction toward the kingdom, not perfection. And, and so we, we, we press on in that way. The other thing is, How do we actually deal with all these anxieties? And that goes to last week. And when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we bring our anxieties. We bring our burdens. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 4. It says, do not be anxious. There it is again. About anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus desires to set you free from the burden and anxiety. That's why he'll say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are heavy and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus desires that for you. But what, what, what does it look like to take a step toward the kingdom this week? You should not hear in this. Maybe, maybe you're good, and I hope you are. Maybe, man, things are going well. You are pursuing the kingdom. You're living a quiet, faithful life. That honors God. Like, don't hear in me saying, like, oh, you should be doing more. You should be doing more. That's not what I'm saying. But maybe, like me, you, you read these passages, and, and Jesus does a little bit of uh, spiritual MRI surgery, and you don't like what you see, and he just wants you to tweak it to adjust it, to, to re-evaluate your priorities, what you're seeking in life. And, and so maybe that's with your finances since that's what Jesus talked about a lot. How can you advance and seek the kingdom in that? Maybe it's at your job, maybe it's in your marriage or, or with your kids. What does it look like to seek the kingdom as a husband or a wife or a father? What does it look like for you this week to seek the kingdom when you just go to the club or you, you hang out with your friends? Like this is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is kingdom obsessed. It's what they think about. It's what they pursue. It's what they go after. And if we're going to do this, I think just one last thing just to remind us is we got to remember and see him who is saying these things. The one who has come and said, hey, don't worry about food. Don't worry about drink. Don't worry about clothing. Don't worry about the treasures of this world. Think about who is saying this to us. He left the permanent treasures, the, the ultimate treasures of heaven, to come and live a life of poverty among us and walk among us. He hungered for 40 days in the desert for you because he was accomplishing a mission for you. He would go to a cross and he would thirst. For you, the one that says, don't worry about your clothing, had one piece of clothing, and at the cross they stripped it from him so that he would hang naked in shame before the world and the soldiers would gamble for his clothing. He knows. He is the one that's saying, hey, seek first the kingdom. It's worth it. You can do it. And so as we fix our eyes on him, we draw a straight line with our lives as we seek first the kingdom. To that end, let me pray for us this week. Father, thank you for your word to us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would just, this week, just just bring this word to us. Seek first the kingdom. Lord, let our religion not be a time and a place that we do, but our lives. Let us pursue you in every area. So I pray, Father, for those that uh, are, are particularly burdened this morning, particularly heavy laden, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister to them, that they would have eyes that are full of light, that they would see you, Jesus, and see your kingdom, and and that there would be a peace that surpasses understanding as they hand over the burdens to you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would make much of Jesus in our midst, in our lives, and in our church for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.